Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a fantastic bonus episode for you. We recently published our new book, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2. The first one was a hit, with Money Week concluding that it should be on every investor's bookshelf. But we made the second volume even better. We expanded it to include 41 hand-selected investment articles written by some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers in the world. We are really proud of it. We also thought it'd be fun to bring on some of the authors and have them read their specific chapter from the book. So that's what you're getting in today's special bonus episode. If you're interested in picking up a copy of The Best Investment Writing Volume 2, head on over to Amazon or our publisher's website, which is Harriman House. Also, know that your purchase will be benefiting charities as all the writer proceeds to go to the charity of the specific author's choosing. So enough from me. Let's get to our guest author takeover with this special bonus episode. Revenge of the Humans, Part 1. How Discretionary Managers Can Crush the Systematics. Six months ago, I found myself in our Estimize office sitting across the table from a hedge fund portfolio manager who said something I honestly couldn't believe. According to this PM who runs a $500 million long short book at a large multi-manager fund, he was taking a data science course at night after work. He told me, quote, if I don't learn how to do quantitative analysis, I'm not going to have a job in two years. A second said the same thing to me a week later. Two weeks after that, I received an email from the school providing that very course, inquiring if I could teach a data science class specifically for finance to 25 members of a hedge fund who had contracted them. These are just a few anecdotes among many in the absolutely massive transformation taking place right now within the discretionary institutional management industry. Discretionary managers have woken up and are now scrambling to understand what's taking place and how they must change in relation to it. Many will not survive the shift. Others will take advantage and be better off for it. This piece takes a deep dive into the following themes and how institutional managers can begin to effectively redirect themselves. One, investors have woken up to the asymmetric risks that they were taking on with active discretionary mutual funds, hedge funds, and RIAs who were basically playing with beta instead of generating idiosyncratic alpha. Now they're pulling their money. Two, asset flows are moving into passive ETF strategies and will continue to move further into smart beta ETF strategies. Long only active management is certainly headed for the grave. Three, hedge fund assets are flowing out of discretionary and into quantitative systematic strategies, which have produced far more consistent alpha. They also blow up less often. Four, most classic systematic alpha strategies were based on price, volume, and fundamentals, which have been largely arbitraged out and are now betas. This has precipitated a race to build new alphas with new data sets. Five, 
Discretionary managers are scurrying to incorporate new data sets, but lack the understanding of how to analyze their efficacy, and more importantly, how to incorporate them into their discretionary trading process. Six, if discretionary managers remain disciplined and execute their rubric faithfully, they can crush systematic quants, but they must solve the religion versus science question first. Seven, the organizational structure of discretionary management teams, along with the type of people they hire, is fundamentally broken and outdated for today's challenges. Changes are starting to take place, but all too slowly for many players to survive. Eight, building the right infrastructure will remain pertinent to surviving this shift. Both quant and discretionary firms must hire teams that include engineers, data analysts, and quants to suss out new data sets. In order to help our discretionary clients at Estimize more quickly catch up to their systematic peers, we've developed a one-day seminar that we host in different cities around the world each year that's designed for institutional PMs, analysts, and traders who know they need to move more quickly through this process. Segments are taught by preeminent buy-side, sell-side, and unique data experts with vast quantitative experience at Two Sigma, PDT Partners, WorldQuant, Wolf Research, Deutsche Bank, and others. Let's take a deeper dive into the topics above and why we felt a whole conference was necessary to explore them. Part one, getting paid for playing with beta is over. Looking back, it's hard to understand why anybody was willing to give most discretionary fund managers money in the first place. The truth is, most PMs were simply playing with beta, whether it be momentum, mean reversion, value, growth, sector, or market cap. Managers were leveraging these far more often than they were actually generating alpha. Now we can all argue over whether correctly timing the use of betas is in itself alpha, but the argument is made moot by the fact that the vast majority of PMs were unsuccessful at this in the long run and eventually blew up. The greatest trick the industry ever pulled was making LPs believe that they could consistently leverage beta and not get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, giving up years of returns in a matter of months. Over and over, fund managers took their, quote, two and 20 to the bank in the years they happened to be on the right side of that equation. Then they blew up. Instead of fighting back to their hurdle, they just closed shop and opened up a new one somehow convincing investors to play the same asymmetric game of risk once again. Heads I win, tails I take a vacation for a year, and someone gives me another coin to flip later. Don't get me wrong, there are managers who have proven track records of not blowing up while playing with beta, and some even generate true alpha, but they're few and far between. Good luck picking the correct fund manager. Why did it take the market so long to wake up? We can start with the great answers you'll hear from friends of mine, like wealth manager Josh Brown. He fully understands the social and egotistical aspect of being invested in these funds, not because it's the rational thing to do, but because of the accompanying prestige. The same can be said for managing your own personal portfolio. It's something to talk about at a cocktail party. And while it seems our current political climate echoes the movie Idiocracy, Financial market education and investor behavior have actually taken a huge leap forward since the 08 crash. I find it interesting that retail investors actually got smart before pension funds, pulling money from active managers, closing their brokerage accounts, and investing in passive, low-cost ETF strategies. As for the tens of thousands of small RIAs 
why would I give them my money either if I can buy a smart beta ETF for 20 basis points that does basically the same thing they were for 100 basis points? You're going to tell me that all those mom and pop RIAs managing $40 million are executing those smart beta strategies as efficiently and accurately as iShares? Please. It's only a matter of time before Betterment or some other robo-advisor allows its clients to algorithmically allocate a portion of their portfolio to these strategies. Heck, I wouldn't be surprised if one of them also provided the ability to use simple, proven market timing overlays in order to rotate in and out or long and short certain smart beta strategies. Hedge fund PMs have to realize that even though they're in the last car in this disruption train, the conductor is coming to clip their ticket as well. They will either evolve or die like any other industry disrupted by better efficiency, I think it's obvious that there will be far fewer of them as most will not successfully shift to generating alpha. Part two, all investing is active, even the passive kind. Let's clear something up. There's no such thing as quote unquote passive investing. The words we use matter because they form the basis for how we think about things and the actions we take. The developed Western world is ripping itself apart over an inability to win a, quote, war on terrorism because for propaganda purposes, we decided to say we were fighting a war on a military tactic. You didn't have to study war theory in school like me to know you can't win a war against a tactic. All investing is active. Even the decision of how to weight an index, what goes into that index, and how to allocate your capital amongst different asset classes. Just because the computer keeps your allocation level static doesn't mean you've abdicated responsibility for investment decisions. This is why I'm such a big fan of smart beta, because it does away with the ignorant notion that you can avoid making a decision on beta to begin with. We all have to, so we might as well make that decision in an informed and active way. In any event, we're going to continue to see massive flows of capital out of active long-only mutual fund and long-short hedge fund strategies and into these. The question on everybody's mind is, how will this affect the market? My best guess is that we're not going to see the downside of massive systemic risks some are warning about when everybody is indexing. The latter part of 2016 and beginning of 2017 prove that even with all the indexed money, correlations can still drop quickly when macro factors evolve. After the 2016 election, cross-asset correlations that have existed for the past decade began to break down. Part three assets are flowing from discretionary to systematic. You don't have to look too deeply to see this massive trend in strategy allocations playing out. WorldQuant, with its growing team of over 600 employees, including more than 120 PhDs and 275 researchers, has been managing systematic investment strategies for millennium management since 2007. At point 72, We've seen Cubist outpace the discretionary side of the firm by a wide margin, with now over 40 systematic PMs. Baliazny has quickly shifted focus and is building a stable of systematic managers to effectively do something with their huge AUM growth. Other multi-manager platforms like Schoenfeld, Paloma, AHL, EngineersGate, and GSA have added significant assets. Paul Tudor Jones is attempting to remake his firm by hiring a bunch of systematic managers, and others are following suit. And let's not even get started with the continued dominance of firms like Renaissance, AQR, and Two Sigma, where, you're, where you probably can't even give them your money if you tried. I would say that the nerds are the new kings of Wall Street, Midtown. But frankly, they, myself included, would cringe at that statement 
given their propensity to run in very different circles than the rest of the money manager crowd. This group is mostly made up of unassuming nerdy PhD types that you would probably take for accountants on the subway. They have serious mathematical and scientific training and have usually honed their craft on other data sets before coming to the financial world. The fact of the matter is that there's simply more efficacy to what these managers are doing than the vast majority of the discretionary trading world. And they've mostly put up the numbers to prove it. And I'm not just talking about returns. These groups are producing real alpha. Their strategies are meticulously back-tested in and out of sample before going live and are scaled up over time. Many discretionary managers launch a book with $500 million in play from day one. I can count on one hand the number of systematic funds that have done that in the past five years. And while some systematic funds don't perform well, you'll be hard-pressed to find any massive blow-ups akin to what's regularly seen on the discretionary side. Pension funds can certainly deal with paying 2 and 20 if they have more confidence that their returns from year one through three aren't going to all disappear in year four. The flow of capital from discretionary to systematic strategies is going to continue as it should. That will have its own repercussions, which we've already started to see. Part four, quants dig for new alpha. A 2012 tell-all book from a former Goldman Sachs trader revealed how the great vampire squid often endearingly referred to their unsophisticated clients as, quote, Muppets. While they rightfully got skewered for that comparison, they were certainly on to something when their trading desk would remark internally that they were basically taking candy from babies. However, many of the Muppets are gone now, and that's left far less alpha in the market to capture. Relative value and statistical arbitrage strategies are about capturing asset mispricings associated with the irrational behavior aspects of fear and greed. This isn't going to change anytime soon. The Muppets aren't coming back. They've wisened up. Less alpha overall will lead to a drop in the number of hedge funds and the amount of hedge fund assets that can generate enough alpha to command high fees. It truly is amazing to watch a data set go from being an alpha to a beta over time. I've seen the sell-side analyst estimate data set owned by Thomson Reuters IBIS travel this path over the past 15 years. Yes, there will always be alpha available to be arbitraged, which is associated with the irrational behavior of humans in markets. But most alpha generated by systematic traders is associated with an informational advantage. About five years ago, many of the classic StatArb strategies stopped working due to an influx of competitors. There simply wasn't enough alpha to go around. This precipitated the smartest firms to search for new data sets with predictive power or reflexivity. Fast forward a few years and an all-out arms race is now underway. I love to use the example of the company that is selling data captured from new car insurance registrations. They get this data daily and it's incredibly accurate at calling new car sales. So instead of waiting until the end of the quarter to find out how many vehicles GM sold, you can basically get a running count of growth on a daily basis. Obviously, that's going to give you an advantage in trading those auto names. That is, until everyone else using the data. At that point, the data set goes from providing alpha you can capture to a data set that you must be looking at in order to avoid an informational disadvantage. In a sense, it becomes beta. So the arms race is in full swing. And there is now a serious lack of qualified talent to analyze all the different data sets and incorporate them into existing multi-factor models. 
While the quantitative research process into the efficacy of a data set hasn't changed much, firms are struggling to build a process around the testing pipeline. The most efficient firms like WorldQuant have been able to take advantage of the competency to move quickly and decisively to incorporate new alphas. This brings me to my last point about the systematic testing process. In the next section of this, I'm going to heavily malign the discretionary buy side for being fairly clueless about how to undertake this entire process. The truth is, even most, but not all, systematic quants suffer from a severe lack of creativity and original thought when it comes to generating hypotheses around how to take advantage of a given data set. From our experience working with discretionary firms at Estimize, they are two steps even further behind the quants as it relates to incorporating new data sets. Let's just go back to the car sales example for a second. Would you know exactly how to take advantage of that data to run an event study and generate alpha? Probably not. You'd likely want to talk with someone who's been trading autos for 10 plus years to get their take on what they think moves auto stocks and how having a good projection of sales would impact those names. A good quantitative research process requires an ex-ante hypothesis for some level of causation and not just correlation. We need to know roughly why something works, not just that it works, or else we won't know why it stops working, and history has proven everything stops working at some point. Being able to hand over an easily testable, clean data set and a bunch of original thoughts about how to generate alpha is imperative for data firms to succeed at this process. Part five, quantumental, systemental, factor-aware, call it what you want. The rise of the systematic quants and their use of these new data sets also had an impact on the poor returns of the discretionary world over recent years. First, the HFT guys killed the day traders, making it impossible to pick up pennies. Next, the StatArb guys crushed the swing traders, playing in the couple of hours to one week time frame. Were they the primary factor of poor discretionary returns? Probably not, but significant nonetheless. A few years ago, the first big discretionary firm started making attempts to hire data scientists and acquire new data sources. They've mostly failed to integrate any of this into an actual investment process. Then about six to nine months ago, another chunk of the more forward-thinking discretionary firms gave in to the realization that they needed to make big changes. It's not as if discretionary PMs were using the data-driven statistical approaches to gain an edge, or that none of them had quants on the desk to help. They were just very few and far between. You may have seen Paul Tudor Jones almost publicly berating his organization in a strange showing of frustration from such a legendary investor. Steve Cohen has been very public about his attempt to shift Point72 in the data-driven direction, even commenting that it's incredibly hard to find good talent these days. We'll get to that in a minute. The guys who have been successful in this game historically see the writing on the wall. Hell, even the first episode of season two for the show Billions features main character Bobby Axe Axelrod giving his team the condensed three-minute version of this piece, albeit in a much louder tone. So whomever the producers of that show are talking to, this whole thing has seeped into the mainstream buy-side consciousness now. The shift that needs to happen is similar to the way players were drafted in Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball. Consider how hard the scouts fought against being replaced by algorithms that were far more accurate than they were. And even in the face of all this evidence, refusing to change. 
Then consider how much money was on the line in baseball and the astronomically larger amount on the line in our world. You would think that would precipitate a much quicker shift, but in fact, it will only mean a slower one due to the fear of change when dealing with so much money. As quants, we're taught how to go through the research process to validate the efficacy of a data set or tool. Everything is derived from this process, and there isn't too much leeway. It is designed as good science. Yes, as mentioned above, you still need a level of creativity in order to do good research. However, discretionary managers don't even have the framework for understanding how to do that research or incorporate new things into their decision-making processes. This is the largest hurdle to making the shift, and I believe less than 20% of managers will clear it. This shift isn't just about using new data sets like Estimize or the car sales example. It's about fundamentally buying into the notion that PMs need to be making investment decisions based on putting the odds in their favor by looking at statistics and not just being gunslingers or bottom-up value guys. That's an affront to the entire way of doing things, just as it was for the baseball scouts. Part six, algorithms plus human experience equals optimal trading. A passage from Michael Lewis's latest book, The Undoing Project, speaks so directly to the issue discretionary firms face today. Lewis writes about a specific behavioral experiment performed on a set of first-year residents and accomplished oncologists. In the experiment, the scientists asked the accomplished doctors to tell them how they make a decision regarding whether a patient has cancer from looking at an x-ray. The doctors all tended to give the scientists a 10-point checklist with a 1 to 10 rating for each of the 10 points. Add up the points and you can accurately determine whether it's cancer or benign. The scientists proceeded to give the set of x-rays, the outcomes of which are known only to them, to the doctors and the residents, asking them to determine whether each is cancer or not. They also give the doctor's checklist to the residents to use. I think you can guess what happens next. The oncologists who supplied the rubric in the first place show almost zero ability above random to accurately determine whether the x-ray was cancer or not. They didn't follow their own rubric, suffered from an astounding amount of representativeness heuristic, and failed to do their job well. Meanwhile, the first-year residents were able to score far higher accuracy rates on average and therefore would have been able to help their patients. They were simply acting as the human measurement component of an algorithm. Similarly, most discretionary PMs would likely supply a rubric for how they make decisions, but when it comes down to it, they don't actually adhere to it. No set of new data or analytical tools thrown into the, quote, mosaic of information that the PM is supposed to be paying attention to will matter unless they are disciplined enough to remove their ego from the equation and reduce themselves to being a human algorithm. There's an inevitable question that arises from the above. What's the point of the human PM if we're going to ask humans to basically be algorithms? Why not just run a fully systematic strategy and remove a human altogether after the quantitative research process is complete? Could a first-year analyst in some good portfolio construction software more faithfully execute the signals than a PM with 20 years of experience? Science would seem to say yes. That said, there's obviously a more optimal scenario where that 20 years of experience alongside the discipline to execute the rubric faithfully results in better outcomes due to the ability to see regime changes in the market 
something quantitative strategies built on linear analysis have a hard time doing. It's my belief that good quantamental, systemental, factor-aware PMs can crush the systematic quants if they're disciplined. Systematic strategies are designed to make small bets across a lot of names using half a dozen or more different signals that each have a weighting in the stock selection and exposure model. A lot of them hit for singles consistently, but that also means that when a really fat pitch comes down the plate based on all the data, they can't swing for the fences. This is the advantage of discretionary managers. With the right discipline, they can take a big cut with a 7% position in their book when all the data lines up and reap the rewards of the hard work. While it's been a tough run of it recently, there are reasons to believe that this is a great time to enter the market with a solid quantitative approach to discretionary trading. The chart below shows that while there may be many secular headwinds for the discretionary investing world, the cyclical nature of this industry is extremely strong. And we're certainly at the deepest part of the trough regarding performance with only one direction to go. Part seven, there's plenty of talent. You're just hiring the wrong people. The last part of this puzzle is obviously the people. And here's the sad truth. The way that discretionary hedge funds have staffed themselves historically is almost criminal. There were actually some real criminals in there too. Picture the normal funnel to becoming a PM running a $500 million long short equity book. You grew up in a wealthy family in a wealthy town, usually in the New York metropolitan area, parts of Silicon Valley, Chicago, or Michigan. You went to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. You took an IB analyst position at Goldman or another bulge bracket. You spent a few years learning how to build a financial model before a hedge fund picked you up for an analyst spot. You made friends with your PM, who if you were lucky, did well. And five years later, when the firm had more capital than it knew what to do with, your PM told the firm to give you a $200 million book to play with. At no point in this process did you ever have to exhibit a lick of skill for the job that you've just been given. Yes, you are probably a very smart individual and you worked very hard, but we all know that smart does not equal good in the investing world. Every step along the way, you were selected not for the trait which would make you the best qualified to do that job. You were selected because you jumped through the hoops which lead to the correct selection bias. The sad truth is that hedge funds are run by white dudes who grew up in Greenwich, and they like and trust working with white dudes who grew up in Greenwich and look like them. And look, this isn't some idealistic push for equality bullshit comment. It's about results. If you are hiring these people exclusively, you are not selecting for skill, and you would not be able to make the shift to a more data-driven quantitative approach. I guarantee it. If I were starting a fund from scratch, I'd rather have a more racially, socioeconomically diverse group of kids from schools other than Ivies than those from Yale who studied political science. And don't get me started on the lack of women running money. Every single study ever done says that they are more successful than men due to a range of behavioral and psychological factors. Yet firms tend to overlook women for PM positions due to their inability to play the game that gets them the capital allocation. And of course, we come back to the fact that the entire industry is designed to hire people that look like the people who are currently in charge. Firms need to start incorporating measurement of variables pre-hiring that actually correlate to success as a PM. They need to start selecting for skill, not just smarts. 
I suspect some kind of psychometric testing firm to be created soon, which has done the research to identify certain skills and traits that correspond to success in different strategies. You don't want the same kind of people running momentum models as the ones running deep value. There isn't a lack of talent. You just need to look in the right places and be willing to elevate people who might not look, talk, or act like you. Part eight, building the right team. The other major personnel issue we're seeing firms grapple with is the question of how to structure their teams to incorporate the quantitative research and data science capability. Some approaches have been successful and others have failed. Each firm, whether quant or discretionary, is going to need a centralized infrastructure that is capable of imbibing a new data set and making it available across the firm. Many systematic multi-manager funds and large centralized managers are already setting up data teams to search for, ingest, clean, and quickly analyze new data sets to test for alpha in their multi-factor models. The heads of these teams are getting paid big dollars, upwards of $2 million a year to run this process that feeds the heart of the machine. And there aren't many good ones out there. The imbalance of supply and demand for this position is causing some funds to make poor hiring decisions in order to simply get someone in the door. The role itself is incredibly multidisciplinary in nature and requires a strong understanding of the quantitative research process. A decent technical background, the ability to travel across the globe to conferences, meeting with hundreds of potential vendors, sniffing out what's real from what's bullshit, determining what startups will be around tomorrow and which won't, and then haggling over price. Please tell me which previous role prepares you for all of that. The firms that don't hire well here are going to fall behind and see their returns suffer as data sets more quickly than ever move from being alphas to betas as they get arbed. This doesn't happen overnight. It takes years for alpha to get arbitraged from a data set, but many won't have as much capacity as those previously. Along with a larger stable of systematic managers, things will speed up. The centralized infrastructure and data acquisition team is going to also house engineers, a product manager, and optimally a quant who can do basic descriptive work on a data set to determine whether it's clean and reliable enough to have PMs use. And that's where the centralized team should end. Each PM or pod should then have a quant, an engineer or two, and a data analyst placed on their desk directly. Here's why. Each PM is going to be trading different names and have a need to access different data sets of information. Fighting over different centralized quantitative research capacity with other pods is a disaster. And then receiving some kind of report that doesn't fit into your actual process is useless. Each PM is going to have a different checklist or rubric with different signals. And the key is the data analysts. They need to have a deep understanding of the industries the PM is trading so that they can work in coordination with the PM and the quant to build a process that can be effectively utilized. I've seen people in this role who also have some coding experience so that they can rapidly prototype stuff for the quant before the centralized team goes out and does the job in a production-ready way. The quant, of course, will be testing different data sets for efficacy and handing them over to the engineers to build factor models. A quantitative approach and a commitment to data science by firms is not a thing you do in some other room. The only way this is going to work is if you build cross-functional teams on the PM's desk 
and support them with a data and infrastructure team at the top. Conclusion, how far down the rabbit hole? So if you're a PM, do you need to take that data science class at night? Yes, but not for the reason you think. PMs aren't going to be writing Python code and working in R to do quantitative research. That's not their job. But in order to effectively communicate and run their teams, they're going to have to understand all the pieces to the process. And most of all, if they aren't educated as to how all of this works, how are they ever going to trust the data and the signals coming out of the process when the time comes to make buy and sell decisions? Revenge of the Humans, Part 2, A New Blueprint for Discretionary Management by Lee Drogan, founder and CEO at Estimize. In early May, I published a thought piece titled Revenge of the Humans, How Discretionary Managers Can Crush Systematics. It was the culmination of my thinking over the last few years regarding the seismic shift taking place in the asset management industry towards quantitative processes and what's next for all of us. To be honest, the response to the piece was surprising given what I felt was a pretty high-level overview. It was widely disseminated through the industry and republished all over the place. Maybe when you're so deeply embedded into something, it's hard to see where the rest of the industry stands on the learning curve. Or maybe it just struck a chord and put a bunch of things together in a coherent way that made sense for people. The piece was published a few weeks before the Estimize Learn to Quant conference held on June 20th. After the conference, I spent some time talking to the attendees, especially the discretionary PMs who made up most of the list and the quants at the firms attempting to help them make the shift. I wasn't surprised to hear their largest piece of feedback given the nature of the QA sessions during the event. While they found the rest of the day useful and interesting, what really struck a chord was the discussion of how discretionary firms will actually make this shift, how they will structure their teams, how they'll design their workflows and stock selection processes, and how they'll overcome the egotistical issues associated with taking decision-making power away from the PM and distributing it more widely. Frankly, we only touched on these things in a cursory way, yet it was the thing that stuck out the most in their review of the day. For that reason, I wanted to take the time to follow up on the first piece with a second and deeper dive into how I see the best ways to structure this process, having met hundreds of firms over the last few years and bringing them onto the Estimize platform. We've seen what's out there, what's working, and what's not. AlphaGo and the human. While the recent string of articles, some very poorly researched and written, some dead on point, by the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and FT will have you believe Skynet is going to exterminate every last human from investing, those pieces are obviously hyperbolic and far from the truth. Two things are very important to remember. First, even systematic quantitative trading begins with humans doing research and making ex-ante assumptions regarding an economic rationale for why one thing should lead to another. When a company beats its consensus estimate by a lot, the stock goes up. Yes, it's possible that true artificial intelligence might make a dent in this at some point, but don't hold your breath. Until then, humans need to make creative, thoughtful decisions about why two things might be correlated in some way. And two, we already have quite a bit of evidence that humans with access to intelligent machines can consistently beat machines. The best example of this 
is the recent performance of Google's AlphaGo model, which ran the table on the best Go player in the world relatively easily. But when the AlphaGo system was given to a mediocre Go player, that player was able to consistently beat the AlphaGo model on its own. Why? Because humans are incredibly intelligent and astute at picking up on data that doesn't fit. Even the most nonlinear intelligent AI models we have today are still based mostly on pattern matching, not necessarily building mental models of things, which is the basis of true intelligence. When something is slightly out of whack, we're pretty good at sensing it. It's based in our evolutionary biology stemming from needing to avoid being eaten on the African savanna or track a wild animal over the course of many days. Of course, the advantage of the AlphaGo system, or any quantitative model for that matter, is that it never oversleeps and gets eaten by the lion. Algos don't get too drunk the night before. They don't go through a divorce. And they don't suffer from the heuristics and biases that are hard-coded into us from birth that we must overcome to operate well in markets. In our specific industry, this translates into a very important distinction between fully systematic models and the human-algo hybrid. Even the best, most sophisticated quantitative systematic funds cannot significantly overweight positions in their book based on a very specific understanding of the minutiae of what drives a specific stock in a specific industry. It's simply too much work to do that across a thousand names or 3,000 names. You can't have models for a zillion different variables. We know intuitively you're likely to come out with nothing good in that situation versus having a dozen variables that work, but only work okay across a thousand names. And for them, that's fine because diversification pays, but it means they hit for singles all day, only singles all day. Discretionary managers can do better though. They can do the deep dive into the quantitative research to find the variables that matter for their specific 50 names and build the models that sit beside the human to guide decision-making 97% of the time. And it's that other 3% where humans can decide to size up when they've, quote, seen this pitch a thousand other times. It's a hanging curveball, and it's time to swing for the fences. There are no shortcuts. While the majority of discretionary firms have woken up to the existential issues they face, Almost every single one of them is going about solving the problem in the wrong way. In essence, they are either naive or unwilling to tackle the true issues at the root of their performance and have attempted to take a shortcut which will not solve anything. The core problem is not getting access to unique data sources. It's not figuring out how to build a data science team. It's not figuring out how to build a data lake. These are necessary but not sufficient steps to solve the problem. The true problem is more deeply embedded in the culture of the discretionary firms. It is a uniquely human problem. The real problem that firms must solve before they tackle those above is how to structure their teams and the investment process itself to be more quantitative and systematic. In fact, solving those other problems before solving the real one will only make things worse. When performance doesn't improve because PMs are not listening to the output of those processes, what do you think everybody is going to say when reviewing resource allocation? The quant and data stuff is going to be the first thing thrown under the bus as adding no value. And after being burned, firms will take two steps back after attempting that first step forward. 
this isn't a thing that you just bolt onto your firm by hiring a few quants or a data science team. This isn't a thing that you can just purchase your way to success in. God knows there are big firms out there that have built big teams and bought a lot of data only to have the firm at large claim it all was useless. That happens because no one did the really hard work to rethink the core investment process from the ground up, including these things from the beginning. I say this to the detriment of my own ability to quickly sell more estimized data to these discretionary firms, which certainly could benefit from it. But I've seen what happens when firms that don't have a process to use things buy them. It doesn't work out well for either party in the end. I'm involved in no less than a dozen deals right now where the quant who was hired by a discretionary firm to review new data sources is banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how to incorporate any of the stuff he looks at into the PM's decision-making. It's not just our stuff. It's everybody else's as well. Eventually, these guys are going to get fed up and leave their firms. What quant wants to deal with interpersonal, social, and process issues all day to have any of their work mean anything? Tear it down to the studs. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in the conference room of a $20 billion asset manager who wanted to hear more about the estimized data set and how they might use it. I normally start these meetings asking them to explain how their investment process takes place, who makes decisions, and on what timeframes. The senior management went on to explain that they had 17 analysts across four main sectors. Four PMs shared the analysts. Their books consist of 60 to 70 names at any given time, and they are shooting for holding periods of one to two years on the long side. Believe me, this never actually happens, but all firms like to tell you that they're longer-term investors. Frankly, I don't understand why, because it sounds good. When I asked them how stock selection took place, they all kind of looked at each other like no one wanted to answer the question. There was a PM sitting in the room. The basic answer that the CIO eventually managed to produce, like Sylvester coughing up Tweety Bird, was that it was an analyst's discretion to bring ideas to the PM and at the PM's discretion to use them or not. And of course, the analyst calls were based on their unique understanding of each stock, whatever that means. I asked if they measured the efficacy of the analyst's historical picks. No. I asked if they measured the accuracy of the analyst's fundamental estimates. No. At this point, everybody around the table got it, and they began asking me questions about the percentage of firms I had met with that were attempting the transformation at different levels. I remarked that I wasn't there to tell them how to structure their investment process. It wasn't my place to do that. They looked at me and said half-jokingly, maybe you should. It was slightly awkward. You could see their faces. They had brought me in to talk to them about how they might be able to leverage our specific data set because their alternative data committee had been tasked with that. But they were realizing that the more they dug into this, the more it was going to reveal the real issues they faced. While these guys should get a lot of credit for being openly introspective, the amount of ego damage that's going to take place for some very rich people in order to make this shift is going to be massive. To my surprise, the guys in that room, no women, were sober about it and seemed to accept the conclusions they themselves had drawn about the situation they're in. But they certainly understood how difficult it would be to make this shift from the perspective of an institutional inertia. It is not enough for executives 
to want something to happen in our industry. The PMs who truly wield the power must be on board as well. And this is a threat not only to their ego, but if done correctly, their position within the firm. Here's what needs to happen. Let's transition away from the problems now, which everybody should be sober about the difficulty of solving, and talk about some solutions. I will preface all of this with the fact that what I'm about to propose has not ever been fully implemented. Some funds I've met with have pieces of this process. Other funds have other pieces. Most in-house software people built to support pieces of this process is super shitty. That's what you get when financial people build software. They forsake user experience and then nobody uses it. I would sincerely advise firms to bend away from attempting to build software meant for use by non-quantitative individuals. For far fewer dollars, I guarantee you can find a fintech company or startup that is willing to work with you to build the feature set you're looking for, and they will have a far greater incentive to see that it works. And if you believe that your edge will be in building this glorious piece of software that no other fund has, well, good luck with that. Core beliefs and universe. I asked some funds what their investment philosophy is, and many can't answer the simple question. All teams need to know what their North Star is. What are the variables, timeframes, market caps, and sectors that you believe your team has an advantage in analyzing better than anybody else? Almost all funds lie about turnover and how often they trade or why they trade. Frankly, I find it interesting how poor most firms are at elucidating this set of constraints given that LPs like to bucket their investments in funds this way and look at the exposure to these variables. Any fund looking to market well should have a good grasp on this. The important aspect of seriously sitting down to lay out your focus here is that many of the next steps are dependent on your bent here. Many firms will figure out they don't have the right people to execute on the strategy that they actually want to run. The same type of people who will successfully run a momentum book will fail miserably at picking value stocks. It's a completely different set of emotional and cognitive abilities. There's no such thing as a generalist. When somebody tells me that they're a generalist, I think, oh, that's awesome. This must have been the first job you were offered. Let's say that we're building a fund in which our investment universe is tech and consumer names above $300 million market cap. We're a long, short shop and our target investment horizon is one year. We believe in growth and momentum, so we're focused on names that are growing top-line numbers quickly and show relative strength versus their peers and the market. Developing different differentiated forward-looking views. At its most basic level, fundamental investing is a very simple algorithm. Stock XYZ, which is part of your universe, currently trades at five times trailing 12-month revenue. Revenue is the variable most causally related and correlated to the trailing one-year performance of the stock. Your expectation for forward 12-month revenue is a billion dollars. You believe that if the company hits that mark, the multiple will go from five times trailing to six times trailing for various reasons. This would give the company a $6 billion valuation. The, quote, market consensus is for the company to earn $900 million. The market's expected price is $4.5 billion, $900 million times five. Your alpha is the difference in the valuation the market expects and what you expect. 
you can either be right about the revenue, the multiple, or both. In order to generate real alpha, you must have differentiated views from the market consensus. Otherwise, you're just playing with beta. And as I outlined in the previous piece, it's very obvious that the number of LPs willing to invest in managers that are simply leveraging beta exposure is, is dwindling. In today's world, analysts at hedge funds and asset management firms do obviously make estimates and have price targets, but there are very few issues around that. In today's world, analysts at hedge funds and asset management firms do obviously make estimates and have price targets, but there are a few huge issues around that. First off, they almost exclusively reside within disparate Excel models. Excel is a great tool for modeling, but it's a really bad tool for running processes. Yes, macros exist, but in my humble opinion, anything being run via macro in Excel should probably be a piece of software externally. It's not that hard to get data out of Excel. These estimates should be collected centrally so that they can be processed centrally. There are a small handful of firms doing this, none well. I've seen the software, it sucks, and the analysts hate it. Second, analysts don't update their models at very regular intervals. It's normally an ad hoc process, which severely limits how useful the models are. Third, because there's no central repository, there's no ex post analysis of the results of those estimates and certainly no good money ball being played by looping the learnings back into the investment decision process. Fourth, analysts only tend to share the models with the PMs for stock selection when they feel, for whatever reason, it's warranted. The entire idea that analysts should be pitching ideas to PMs has to end. Just think for a second how many crazy heuristics and outside variables are associated with this being how ideas bubble up to the person who puts things in the book. While the analyst is doing really good work to analyze a few dozen or more companies, has models, has estimates, maybe has a really good feel for supply and demand for the stock and other variables, he could decide not to take an outlier of you that he thinks is a winner to the PM because he had a fight with his wife this morning and doesn't feel like getting into another difficult argument again today. Maybe the last few ideas he brought to the PM didn't go well, and so he wants to play it safe with the next one. Maybe he's been bringing all his ideas to the PM, but the PM doesn't listen to him, and now he's pissed, so he's going to keep a personal record of them, but not give the good ones to the PM because he hates his boss and wants to change firms. I've seen it all. The fights between analysts to get their ideas into the book, the backstabbing, the broing out with your PM to become better friends. Who thought any of this was a good idea? Fifth, no one is measuring the efficacy of any of the estimates being made, and it's rare that the performance of the analyst is tracked to any meaningful degree. And if it is, it's rarely, if ever, used to inform the future decisions. We're dealing with very structured data here that we can measure extremely easily at regular intervals. There's no reason that we should be measuring analysts subjectively in dumb ways, like how well they get along with the PM. This isn't a hockey team. Chemistry isn't necessary. It's about having a differentiated view and being correct. Yes, you need to be able to talk through how you got there and your confidence intervals. But man, that should be tertiary at best in terms of the totem pole of analyst skill sets. Give me Michael Burry over the hedge fund bro who can talk your ear off any day. But if we don't have a long history of someone's track record, 
A small sample of their estimates won't be statistically significant, you say. Yes, true, but you're not dealing with one analyst. You're dealing with a dozen at a decent-sized fund, and we can quickly get to that level in aggregate. And then, as track records build for individuals, we can start to narrow down our selection. How do analysts develop differentiated models? Amongst all of their other methods, which I'm not going to get into here, it can and should include access to new unique data sources. As I said previously, firms are mostly doing this whole thing backwards. But once they get this process in place, this is where a lot of the company level data fits in. It should inform the analysts as to what their beliefs of the forward earnings, revenue, EBITDA, same source sales, monthly active users, ARPU, or whatever other variables are important to that company. And then it should also inform their views on the multiple. It is really at the analyst level that a lot of company-specific information should be used. But at the end of the day, it needs to be used to inform a structured estimate of future expectations and placed into the rest of the process for stock selection, just like any other. An analyst told me a story about his fund in which the data science team had gotten some good data that made them feel like Netflix's international subscriber editions that quarter was going to be well above what everybody was expecting. They themselves made a recommendation to buy the stock to the PM. The PM looked at it and went the other way for whatever reason and shorted the stock. Netflix was up 20% the next day. The head of the firm then put it on the no trade list. None of this is going to matter if you don't have a process to use it in. Here's how our theoretical hedge fund is going to work to solve some of these issues. Analysts are going to be required to update their models and thus their estimates the day of, the day after, as well as 45 days into each company's fiscal quarter, and again, three days before each company report. Analysts are required to make a full forward year of quarterly estimates for EPS revenue and the two or three key performance indicators specific to their firm. Same store sales, bookings, iPhones, etc. Analysts will put an expected multiple on the aggregated full year of estimates they make to imply a price target. Let's assume we have 10 analysts. Each of them is going to cover 30 names. So we'll have 300 to work with. Structuring the unstructured. Stock selection, obviously, is not just about structured forward-looking estimates. There are a range of other variables that have to be taken into consideration, variables associated with risk factors that have to be accounted for, or catalysts that could affect the fundamentals or the multiple of the stock. Theoretically, these unstructured variables should all play into either the fundamental expectations of the analyst or the multiple she puts on it, but realistically, they won't, so we need to capture them. There are a few decent software tools for teams to capture this type of information and share it. And firms have done a much better job at this task than the structured estimate side. Factset acquired Code Red a little while back. Advent acquired Tamale from my friend John Fawcett, who now runs the great Quantopian platform. The problem with both products is the nature of the input being vastly unstructured. Good luck getting anybody to systematically review the notes the analysts input. And if you think getting analysts to make structured estimates on regular timeframes is difficult, try convincing them to put notes in there regularly. There are some firms now trying to run semantic analysis on their own internal research notes to structure the sentiment embedded in it. 
but I haven't seen anyone doing this effectively or getting anything out of it. There's a better way to do this. Analysts need to pick the 10 or so unstructured variables that they believe will affect the stock performance on a regular basis and give structured sentiment for them. I'm talking about stuff like management quality, probability of getting acquired, disruption risk, etc. Each company will share some variables with the others and have their own unique drivers. The key here is to turn those research notes into data by asking the analysts to rate each variable on a 1 to 10 scale or give a binary yes-no. There are two uses for this. One, when we get to the latter part of the stock selection process where the PM gets involved, it's so much easier for her to look at structured variables than a whole lot of words. Two, we can see the historical change in the analyst sentiment for these variables and ask them questions about that change. And we can run a correlation between these variables and stock performance or between these variables and the estimates. We're simply trying to collect as much useful data at a regular interval as we can because machines are really good at using data. They aren't so great at dealing with a bunch of words entered at random intervals. Our analysts are going to fill out these unstructured surveys at the same intervals they make their estimates or at any point in time in between. Developing factor models. In a minute, we're going to discuss how our analysts' forward-looking estimates are going to be the backbone of our stock selection process. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the other piece of the puzzle, which we will later merge with the former. Up until now, quants really haven't played a role at all in our process. Quants aren't really the people who are going to help our analysts get a hold of the unique data sets that help them make better estimates. That really falls into the realm of data engineers and data analysts. But we're now going to pull them into developing factor models, which will help us with both our stock selection and risk management, market timing, position sizing, etc. A factor model, for those not initiated, is basically a z-score of some variable across stocks in your universe. Some factors can represent betas, value, momentum, or growth. And some can be true alphas, like the ones we provide to clients at Estimize. Post-earnings drift, pre-earnings consensus trend, historical surprise, through-earnings drift model. Our goal in this part of the process is to develop alpha-generating factor models. At the very end of this, I'll talk briefly about portfolio construction and how to limit factor exposure to betas. Alpha-generating factor models are developed by quants using the scientific method. We start with a hypothesis, usually focus on a specific data set for why a variable A would be causally related and correlated to the outcome in the price of a stock. Alpha-generating factor models are developed by quants using the scientific method. We start with a hypothesis, usually focus on a specific data set for why variable A would be causally related and correlated to the outcome in the price of a set of stocks. For example, maybe we believe that the tone of the words the CEO uses on the earnings call is associated with six-month stock performance. Either we've developed the tools internally to perform this analysis, or a third party has and can deliver us an output our quants can leverage. In either case, our goal is to basically rank the sentiment from the calls from best to worst. We turn that into a numeric score for each company, indexed between negative 100 and positive 100. Once we have our score, we take the first half of the time series of our factor score data set and look at the correlation between scores and stock movements. 
if there's a positive relationship and the top decile of scores significantly outperforms the bottom decile of scores, we've completed step one. Then we take the second half of our time series and run the same analysis. We then analyze how similar the results were between the first half in sample and the second half out of sample. If they are similar, we can be confident that we have a model that will inform us well in the future. Warning, the above paragraph is probably the quickest, dirtiest review of quant research and factor models ever written, but it should get the basic point across. We're not just going to develop one factor model. We're going to build a whole set of them, and each company may have different interesting data sets that gain us insight into how stocks will perform relative to one another. We're basically attempting to algorithmically rank our universe from best to worst on a range of different factors. Quants are going to play a big role in this process, but so will the data analyst who works with the fundamental analysts to understand their hypotheses for what data might drive their names. You cannot do the quant research without the data analysts or the fundamental analysts. This is a team effort due to the nature of having to have an economic rationale for why a variable is causally related to under or over performance amongst their names. The quant research pipeline is a tricky one. There are always limited resources and data companies calling in left and right to get you to test their data set. Data analysts need to be attending conferences and talking to new data vendors constantly while working with the analysts and PMs to figure out what variables might make the most sense for their names. A simple weekly meeting where the data analysts, PM, and analysts all come with a force rank of the data sets on the board for testing in the future makes sense. Results from ongoing testing will also be shared at this meeting. The PM should ultimately be the one who sets the schedule for future testing, not because they are the most knowledgeable, but because it will engender a sense of ownership over the process and the outcome that the PM needs to take. This will become more clear why later. Measurement of historical accuracy. While having all this structured data from our analysts is great, it only gets us so far if we don't measure and use it for a few different purposes. It's not that hard to run basic statistics on how accurate our analysts are. We want to know which stocks they are best at estimating, whether they were correct because of their fundamental estimates or their multiple estimates. When are they most correct? When are they super aggressive? Or when are they most conservative? Obviously, the larger the delta to consensus, the greater chance they are going to be wrong. So we need to understand their weighted score. As I said above, we're trying to play money ball here. We're looking for the analyst predictions with the greatest delta opportunity, which we have confidence in. We can also look at the unstructured variables for which we had the analysts give us their ratings. Were they able to predict names that would be taken out or management that would get caught committing fraud? Only one way to know, measure. This can all be done easily with software. Being able to measure all of this should not only inform which analysts you trust, but who should be compensated more or less, or fired. Let's not pretend our industry is based on love and kindness. Analysts are mercenaries who should gravitate towards the firm that treat them the best, comp, resources, environment, etc. If I was a great analyst, I'd want to work in a truly meritocratic environment where I didn't have to play politics with my PM. I'd just do my job as a great analyst and have the track record prove it if they don't ultimately listen to me. This is also going to have an impact 
on who firms hire, namely women. I'm no culture warrior, but guys, you are destroying your chance of building your firms by continuing to lock an entire gender out of your firms because of the cultural issue. Women are more analytical, less prone to irrational bets, and frankly, in my experience, they cause fewer issues in the workplace because they have less ego. There are academic papers that back up the fact that female PMs are simply better at their jobs. List review and debate. So let's bring this all together now. We have our universe and investment philosophy. We have our analyst expectations and we have our factor models. Now comes the hard part where all the ego comes out to play. The software that sits at the center of this process is going to produce an analysis of where our analysts' implied price targets differ from the market consensus and the confidence interval the system has in those differentiated expectations being correct. All of our names are going to be sorted top to bottom, both on the long and the short side, by the delta in those expectations so that we can run down the list at a regular interval. On this screen, we'll be able to dig into all of the underlying statistics about our analyst expectations, their historical accuracy, and all of the unstructured attributes they've given a 1 to 10 scores for. Theoretically, this list should be the basis for the PM stock selection model. These are her analyst's best ideas. It is now her job to dig further in. In the case of our fictional fund, the PM should be reviewing this list every day since changes in expectations due to recent earnings reports can and should significantly change future expectations from our analysts and affect which names are long and short targets. For longer-term funds, this process might be weekly or even monthly or quarterly. The PM then needs to go back to each analyst and ask questions, dig deeper into their thesis, bring up issues, and have debates about their underlying assumptions. Why did they expect the multiple to increase? What was the catalyst for that? Do we really believe the market will see things the way that we do? Why would you be wrong about growth going from 20% to 30% year over year? Could this short name get squeezed or bought? This is where the PM earns her job. Theoretically, the alpha she creates is the difference between a portfolio simply rebalanced regularly to produce the top and bottom ideas versus the portfolio she actually holds due to weeding out names where her experience and intuition says to deviate from the model. We can directly measure this. It's not the analyst's job to fight for their positions to be in the book. It's the PM's job to weed it out. I hope you appreciate the difference between these two things and why it makes such a huge impact. In the case of our fictional fund, the PM will review this list daily and have conversations with the analysts as needed. Because our universe is 300 names, our book is going to be roughly 40 names, and we're going to run it beta neutral. Stock selection and portfolio review. While the PM may review the list daily, That doesn't mean that they'll be trading daily, and it doesn't mean whatever is at the top and bottom will get into the book. This is where we now weave in the factor models we built earlier. Our software will place the negative 100 to positive 100 factor model scores for each of our factors next to the stocks in very simple color-coded boxes, and then give an overall factor score. The idea here is that we want to match the fully quantitative view with our analyst predictions and see where they both line up. There may be cases where our analysts believe in the fundamental thesis, but our factor models simply say that it's not the right time. So we'll pass. 
This really gets useful when the factor model scores line up with our analyst assumptions. This is where discretionary firms employing this process can size up and hit home runs. This is why discretionary managers can beat the systematic quants, because they can take bigger swings when a fat pitch comes right down the center of the plate. PMs need to be able to put their egos away here and listen to what the factor models are saying. Don't try and bet against the money ball system. More often than not, you're going to lose. Some of these factor scores are going to be stock selection based, history surprise, relative strength, etc. But some of them will be more timing based and shorter term, like a few of the factor models we built at Estimize around pre-earnings, through earnings, and post-earnings drift. These models are helpful for risk management and position sizing around earnings and can help you collect alpha in the few weeks around each report. It can also keep you out of holding a name through a report where the odds are poor and a negative move is expected. We can use these and other timing models to manage risk better and limit the number of names that blow up on us. Our goal is to bat around 50%, but slug 600 and limit our losses on the downside by admitting when we're wrong and exiting trades. There's nothing that says we can't re-enter them later if the fundamental outlook still holds. But if multiples move opposite of our thesis, we need to reevaluate why we were wrong about that side of the estimate. The names in our book need to be evaluated regularly as well. Do they still fall at the top of our list? Do our factor models still favor them? Just because our target time frame for our trades is a year does not mean that we need to hold our names that long or that we can't hold them longer. It means that we're basing our book on assumptions made about stock prices a year out. In terms of position sizing and portfolio construction, it's very important that we're aware of what betas we're exposed to and attempt to limit that exposure. Software like Omega Point does a good job at helping to optimize position sizing and portfolio construction for this purpose. Many firms have no clue that they're generating real alpha, but producing negative returns because they're exposed to the wrong betas at the wrong times. A great example of this being that Tesla and Microsoft have both done very well recently, but simply being long both did not generate you the same amount of alpha. Most of Microsoft's move can be explained by a few betas, but Tesla's move was not. It was independent of the market, so to speak. It was true alpha. We're looking for true alpha, or at least to very selectively leverage beta at opportune times. Betas like momentum and value tend to oscillate in terms of performance, and we would be smart to pay attention to when we should limit our exposure to these in relation to sizable position moves in our PL. Organizational structure. One of the biggest problems today is that while some firms are begrudgingly trying to make the switch over to being more quantitative, they have not altered their organizational structures at all. The quant or data science teams they've hired sit almost entirely outside of the process itself. CIOs have no clue where to put these people, and they don't want to tell the PM to deal with them. So they just stuck them in another room. Huge $200 billion asset management firms have hired a bunch of quants usually in the risk management department, to do research, simply to say that they have quants working there. Even the senior most quants and heads of data science have zero power to implement anything because the PMs who run each book are still in charge. And these firms rarely want to build out fully systematic books because that's not where the AUM is. They don't really have, nor do they want products set up for that. I want to walk through the different types of people in the front and middle office 
and how firms should think about hiring these people and giving them authority. But most of all, how CIOs should think about demanding cooperation amongst them. Fundamental analysts. Gone are the days of simply hiring the kid coming out of her second year of investment banking work at Goldman. That's fine if you just want your analysts to build models and run numbers, but it's useless if you need them to have an informed and differentiated view on an industry. Analysts are actually going to be older, most likely mid-30s or greater, and have experience working within the industry they cover. If you're going to make estimates for the future of semiconductors, you better have worked in that industry prior because technologies move quickly and there are both hugely cyclical and secular trends taking place at the same time. My enterprise tech analyst better come from a Silicon Valley startup background, someone who has relationships in that world where companies like IBM are getting disrupted faster than ever by startups that can scale extremely quickly. There is massive opportunity in those relationships and knowing the competitive landscape firsthand. Analysts do not need to possess technical quantitative knowledge, but they have to be open to using new unique data sources as inputs to their estimates and sentiment about the multiple. Overall though, I want smart people with deep industry experience willing to make bold calls. Trader. More and more traders are becoming less relevant as algos take over but those who are left are going to be far more quantitative than they were before. Data engineer. Engineering is an important part of leveraging data and having someone dedicated to working with data feeds is important. A quantitative background is great, but not necessary. And I would rather have someone who works quickly and accurately more than anything else. This is a data wrangling job, matching things up, cleaning it up, dealing with vendors, sales engineers. Quantitative engineer. These are the real expensive engineers, the ones who have to turn the quant models into code, the factor model. They need quant backgrounds, but also very strong engineering skills. They're usually the lower level PhD students, but not the really awesome ones doing astrophysics. Quantitative researcher. This is your pure quant, the one doing the research into new factor models and looking at the efficacy of the new data sets as an indicator of future fundamental performance of a company. You can grab them out of Chicago Booth and other academic institutions. Data analyst. Ah, the data analyst, the rare bird. This is a hard role to fill and one that many firms have stupidly skipped over. This is the person who works between the analyst and PM and the quant, quant engineering and data engineer. This person needs technical knowledge, but also the ability to dive into analyst models and see what data they need that can help them. This person is going to be at a lot of conferences looking for new data sets and even working with data engineers to quickly take a look at new things. Interpersonal skills are a high priority here. It's a hard mix of skills to find in one person, which is why I've seen firms pay so much money for these people. It's a difficult role. Portfolio manager. Of all the roles, this is where I think things really need to change in terms of who sits in this seat. It can no longer be hedge fund bros. They simply won't survive here. Nor will the pure gunslingers and tape readers. Gone. And you certainly don't want the pure quants sitting in this seat. PMs of the future are going to be far more interpersonal and process driven. And this person does not need to be the smartest person on the desk. In fact, I think that's probably a detriment to the success of the team if she is. This is a cross-functional role. 
and one that needs to be based on the behavioral attributes of the person more than anything else. An NBA may be useful here, but I would even say that having experience working at the early stages of a startup as a CEO can add a lot. I'm waiting for someone to develop a firm to leverage psychometric testing for different investment strategies so that we can identify people tuned for momentum versus value. You're talking about a completely different psychology between those two people, and it's imperative that you choose the person correctly. The PM needs to be able to keep the pace like a conductor and have the general knowledge about the sectors they are trading to go deep with the analysts. PMs should have some training in statistical and quantitative methods in order for them to talk intelligently with the quants and trust the factor models. Without that trust, there's simply no point in having them, and you'll only gain that by understanding how they're built. Should a PM know how to code? No. Should they understand what the code does and why? Absolutely. Basic data science classes can provide this knowledge. Quantitative research methods 101 in college is a requirement. I believe that compensation structures for PM need to change. This is no longer his book. He is another player on the team who has a specific role to coordinate the dance. But in many ways, he will have less impact on the alpha generated by the book than the analysts or the quants who create the factor models. The PM is now the offensive coordinator calling the plays, not the quarterback on the field scrambling around and throwing touchdowns. We can now compensate analysts accurately for the efficacy of their calls and the PM for how much alpha she adds above them. The rest of the team should be bonused out based on the performance of the book. At pod-based firms, the PM trader analyst, data analyst, quant, and quant engineer are going to be members of the individual pod. Outside each pod will sit a centralized data infrastructure group made up of the firm's CTO, a centralized data analyst, and centralized data engineers. Do not place true quants in this group because they will have little to no impact on anything used by the PMs if they are not part of their actual group. The software. I've talked a lot about this software that will sit at the center of this process. As I said before, firms should not attempt to build it. They will fail. For the past six years, I've been building a company called Estimize that does much of the first part of the process, collect and analyze the forward-looking fundamental assumptions of the analysts. Over 70,000 people now contribute their estimates to our platform, including a broad swath of the buy side, making it the largest estimate data set in the world. It produces consensus estimates that are more accurate than the Thomson Reuters IBIS or Bloomberg 70% of the time and 15% more accurate to the company's print. Crowdsourcing works, plain and simple. Quant and discretionary firms purchase our data feeds and some effectively use them to generate alpha. Others don't. We are now beginning to partner with discretionary firms looking to implement this type of process to provide them with the internal dashboard, which will do what I've mentioned above. This is the next three years of my firm, working with funds to solve this process issue and become more quantitative in their decision making. I believe good software can produce positive behavioral results, as we've already seen with the pure fundamental estimates we provide to the market. I'm excited to be part of the massive shift in our industry and sincerely believe that we can help build better firms that will be successful in competing for both capital and alpha against the systematic quants. My team and I are always here to chat about how you can effectively make that shift.